Hi there, Malika Bilal here. I'm handing the mic this week to my Al Jazeera colleague, Mohammed Jamjoum. He'll be hosting the show for the next few episodes. I'll be back soon. There was a complete earthquake feel prior to the explosion. On August 4th of this year, a blast shook Beirut, the capital of Lebanon. Just happened, you know, just out of carelessness and stupidity. And this is like very, very frustrating. At least 190 people died and more than 6,500 were injured when a large amount of ammonium nitrate stored at the port of the city exploded. You know how Lebanon always says we live as if it's our last day? Well, you know what? We were pretty close to our last day. I'm Mohammed Jamjoum, and this is The Take. Anyone who's lived in Lebanon understands just how resilient the people there are. But they also understand how sick the Lebanese are of having to marshal the strength it takes to rebuild over and over and over again. From civil war to political assassinations to conflict with Israel, for the Lebanese, the last half century has been brutal. Every time they seem to get back on their feet comes some other form of devastation. Even before the explosion, Lebanon was facing multiple crises. A country whose economy has been pushed to the brink of collapse. Nearly a third of the population are living below the poverty line, and the Lebanese pound has lost about 80% of its value in less than a year. It's pushed tens of thousands of people into poverty and triggered the largest anti-government protests in more than a decade. But none of that could have prepared the Lebanese for what happened at the port. And so here they are, coming together yet again as a community to get through it. Today, we're not delving into politics, corruption, or any of the underlying causes of this tragedy. Instead, we've decided to talk to three very creative people in Beirut to get their impressions on how life has changed and find out if they think things will ever be okay. I was based in Beirut for three years. The city often left me feeling both dazzled and depressed. It's a hard thing to explain to outsiders, because unless you've spent a substantial amount of time there, you really can't understand how a place so beautiful can also be so infuriating. And yet, despite the power cuts, the water shortages, the constant traffic, my wife and I fell hard for Beirut. And as soon as we'd go to a place like Taule, one of our favorite restaurants, all the irritations would be forgotten. Taule is owned by Kamal Muzawa, a restaurateur and humanitarian. And he's been quite busy these days. Thank you for insisting and for being after me. You know, it's just, you know, overwhelming physically and emotionally. Kamal has long been on a mission to celebrate traditional Lebanese cuisine and local products. In his establishments, chefs from all over the country are brought in to cook their delicious food and highlight the gastronomic history of the region. Since the explosion, he and a team of volunteers have been dedicating all their time cooking and distributing meals 
for those in need. Kamal, from reading your posts in the immediate aftermath of the explosion, it, it felt to me like you were really struggling with how to go on. You wrote about the encouragement that you received. Is that what made you feel like you had to marshal the reserves to be able to go out in the streets uh, to start getting your team together and feeding those in need? You know, in the beginning, we said, like, we're going to close. Like, what can we do? We're not going to operate as a restaurant. Like, we're in pieces. We're shattered. And on the same day in the afternoon, I received a WhatsApp message from World Central Kitchen saying, like, okay, guys, we're coming. World Central Kitchen is a nonprofit organization that sets up emergency kitchens in the aftermath of disasters around the world. It was founded by famous Spanish-American chef Jose Andres. He and his team were on the ground in Beirut within a matter of days. We met on Thursday afternoon, and on Friday morning, we were already set and ready to produce. We started with a thousand meals a day. It's always, it's always a team effort, family effort. The bigger the catastrophe is, I think, the more we come together as one. Kamal has become a kind of culinary ambassador, someone who strives to unite people, no matter their religious or political differences, through food. It's why people like Chef Jose Andres hold him in such high esteem. Here we are in this amazing place uh, from uh, my friend uh, Kamal. I'm here with Kamal. Kamal, say hi. Hello. Kamal is also a humanitarian. So in the aftermath of the explosion, I wasn't surprised to see so many people around the world offering to help him pick up the pieces. Even French President Emmanuel Macron sent him a message expressing his solidarity. Kamal, you know, what was it like for you to get those messages of encouragement? What did that do for your morale and for the morale of your team? Well, we knew that we weren't alone, and this was very, very important. When you know you're not left alone, and people care about you, and people would, will support and help, you know, that's very, very important. This gives you strength, because when it happened, you don't have energy, you don't have strength anymore. You are just shattered in pieces, like the glasses you saw all over the city, you know. This idea of the Lebanese being resilient, while it's true, has also become a bit of a cliche. I've heard many Lebanese uh, people express a lot of displeasure about that word since the explosions. And you yourself have very strong feelings about the word resilience. What are those feelings and why? I closed my ears when you were talking. Did you see me? I didn't hear you talking. I don't know what you talked about. Because there used to be something called the F word. Now, for me, there is something called the R word. And I cannot hear, I cannot, you know, think of this word anymore as if we, if we were heroes. No, we are not. We are just trying to survive. There's one way to go. It's only forward. There's no other way to go. You can stop. You can say, like, I'm surrendering. I'm going away. You can do whatever you want. But if you want to go on, there's only one way. It is forward. You know what? Instinct of survival is just like, an, you know, what's elastic rubber in English, right? Yes. A rubber has a certain point of tension, right? You can stretch two times and you stretch a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. But then at one point, it's going to break. Kamal wondered at first if he'd reached his breaking point. Not only does he own Taula, he also has an open-air farmer's market called Su'a Tayyib. Both businesses were severely damaged. But now he's more determined than ever. 
The restaurateur who lives by the motto, Make Food, Not War, has already started moving to a new location where he and his team will continue providing food to the needy through what he calls an emergency soup kitchen. So it's our soup kitchen that is now, we call it an emergency kitchen in partnership with World Central Kitchen. We're going to continue it with a permanent community kitchen that will be in the same space too, which will deliver three meals daily to the people of the region and to the needy in Beirut. So we used this uh, catastrophe, we used this explosion to move to something better. Rana Salam is one of the most well-known graphic designers in Beirut. She's worked hard to develop a unique aesthetic that showcases the country's culture and its contradictions. But you can also find it in videos she posts on social media, where she travels to different parts of the country and highlights the vibrancy of local markets, products, architecture, and cuisines. She wanders around talking to people, displaying bits and pieces of the place you'd be hard-pressed to find in news reports. After the explosion, Rana started documenting the devastation in great detail, riding around the city on her scooter, filming everything she could. Her Instagram posts provided a grim picture of how horrifying the damage truly was. Rana, in one of your videos on Instagram, you describe something very, very impactful. You, you describe the sound of glass being swept on the streets as the new sound of Beirut. Can you tell us more about that? Every morning when I would wake up after the explosion, that's the only sound I would listen to from my window. There was no longer the, the, the Beirut, uh, you know, beeping of the, of the cars or people talking or kids playing. It was this... <laughs> You know, this constant sound, 24 hours a day. I'm not you know, exaggerating at all. And it went on for probably just stopped a couple of days ago. But that sound was so symbolic. That was the sound of Beirut. Like Kamal, Rana has grown awfully tired of the word resilient. Resilience, I think it's a bit like a plaster. They're trying to... to you know, keep the hope up. Of course, we, we have to have that little plaster on our wound that's humongously deep. When I was living in London, the perception and the image that was exported by the Middle East was so negative and I was sick and tired of it. Then to learn the art of, of, of media and graphics back then, I'm talking 30 years ago when I studied uh, graphic design in the UK, I thought, wait a minute, this is so powerful image is is key how you export it how you package it and i started to do that with my work unconsciously exporting my culture because i was so fed up with being just image manipulated and, and media is can be very harsh you know politics can be twisted by the west so as a designer there's a thin line between design and politics when you think about it that thin line rana's talking about is apparent to anyone who walks around Beirut. Long after the end of the civil war, remnants of the conflict are still easy to spot. Walls and buildings still pockmarked by bullet holes sit directly across from brand new high-rise apartment buildings. Rana couldn't help but notice the influence of war on design. 
So it's no surprise to learn that when she attended the Royal College of Art in London, she wrote her thesis about it. I did this whole thesis about how people survived under the Civil War in terms of quote-unquote design, how people rebuild, how people recycle, how people just continue, and how there's beauty in destruction, like the sound of the glass. It's kind of a bit bizarre to say that there's a beauty in destruction, like when the plant starts to grow from a rotten soil. And I, I realized I'm still doing it again. It's uh, actually, it's quite painful to even talk to you now about it. I feel this whole body of work I've been doing for the last 30 years, I'm still doing it and I will still continue. It's, it's part of my mission. I guess I'm here to do that. Rana, in the immediate aftermath of, of the explosion, there were some of your videos where you were taking the viewers along from Shafia down to Jamezi for people who wanted to try to donate blood to the you know, outside of the Red Cross, describing what was going on with the hospitals. How difficult was it for you to be documenting that while so much was going on? This time, I just had to do it all on my own. I had to stop, park my bike. Just, it was very actually real rather than calculated. And uh, just was stopping at the hospital to realize that they were literally so full, they couldn't take anybody. And the Red Cross in Jamezi was completely gone. They had relocated it. And it was to see it with the naked eye is very different than seeing it on media and social media. The, the, the size of the destruction with you inside it is, is completely different. And to see physically how it, everything's been chewed up, vacuumed, sucked in by the pressure of the explosion. It's unbelievable. What's, it's nothing like the Civil War, by the way. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Nothing to compare to the Civil War. And again, the Civil War was built up. This was in five seconds, a civil war of five seconds, like completely just, it, I'm going to use the word, it was like rape. The city was raped. For many in Beirut, Rana included, the sense of emotional wreckage in the wake of the explosion has rivaled even the physical destruction. We're obviously suppressing our emotions. The sweeping of the street, it's a bit like, you know, when you, you, you numb your feelings. Sweep and numb. Just, you know, that movie, uh, The Karate Kid, wax on, wax off. You just do. And it numbs you. You don't sit and think. And now that the dust is settling, uh, I've been talking, that's when all the emotions are going to come out. It's traumatic. It's a trauma. We cannot be that resilient. We're humans at the end of the day. The, um, the, we cannot suppress those feelings. It's not just this physical destruction, it's emotional trauma. I mean, as much as people think, oh, Rana, you're so resilient, I'm not. I'm, we're numb, I, I'm paralyzed. I sit at my desk every day, you know, trying to ignore what's happened to me. And I can't do my work normally. I, I'm, obviously, it's a trauma. Emily Maldi is a photojournalist who grew up between Canada and Lebanon. Through her photos, she's always tried to mix an insider's knowledge with an outsider's perspective. I always came back to Lebanon very, very often. Like almost every summer with the family and everything. Until last year, she was living in Paris. Then she went to Beirut to put together an exhibit and the anti-government protests started. 
she decided to stay and document them. I, I always thought, like, could I move back to Lebanon? Would I ever do it? And, you know, when I come back to Lebanon the first few days, I'm like, oh, my God, this country is crazy, you know, like it's chaos and what's going on. But then after that, after a few days, you get attached and you're like, I actually love it. How tough has it been for you to document the devastation and the trauma? Is it the natural instinct of a photographer that's kicked in uh, or do you just feel this is your duty? With the job that I do as a, as a photojournalist, we always are taught to get detached because the idea is to really just focus on catching and showing and reporting what's going on. But it's something else to actually be in your own country, in your own home. When this explosion happened, the first reaction I had was to look for my camera and to pick up my equipment and to go down. But being in Lebanon, being home, being surrounded by family and friends, it's not the same thing because as I was down, in one hand, I was taking pictures and in the other, I was trying to call people that would like pop into my mind just to see if they're okay. On one of your posts on Instagram, you wrote, we deserve better than resilience. And I wanted to ask what exactly you meant by that, because I've seen other people posting similar sentiments right now. People are tired of hearing the Lebanese being described as so resilient. What did you mean when you wrote that? We keep doing that. We keep doing that. And we need, like, we need a break. We need a break. Lebanon needs a break. I want my parents to be able to tell themselves that they can actually have the next 15, 20 years of their lives in peace. I want to know that we can start thinking that we're rebuilding and it's going to stay. I do believe that we deserve a break. And the thing is, to get this break, we need change. And when I talk about change, I'm... As a photojournalist, I try to stay as unbiased as I can. And, you know, whether I'm for or against it, I will talk about it. You know, I will ask my questions and I will show proof and I will, like, everything I can. But now I'm just saying, I'm like, this government needs to change. That sentiment was popular even before the blast. Last October, huge anti-government demonstrations erupted in Beirut. From the start... Emily felt compelled to be out there, among the protesters, photographing them. Now, she's doing her best to chronicle what's happened since the blast. What we've lived is unexplainable. You know, people ask me, how are you coping? I'm coping by working. I'm coping by helping. I'm coping by sharing to the world what is going on. And I've been working in a base camp. Since day one, I work with four different associations, giving uh, hot meals, giving clothes, giving first aid. Now we're also getting wood and glass and plexiglass, and we want to try to rebuild as much as we can. I mean, you spoke about volunteering, but what have you seen the government actually doing to help people? The government hasn't been doing anything. Nothing. I'm, like, shocked. Emily told us that she often sees the police watching volunteers clean the streets, but that they don't seem to do much. I'm here, and I'm cleaning the streets, and I see them sitting on the chair just watching us. That drives me nuts. 
because I just feel like saying, I know that this is your working hours and your job is to, I guess, stand there and uh, secure the street. It makes me so sad to see that they're just sitting there and watching us clean. At a time when so many people are thinking of leaving Lebanon, Emily is committed to remaining, to staying objective, no matter how invested she is. A lot of people are leaving, and I understand. A lot of people are staying, and I get that, because a lot of them think, I have to help my country get rebuilt. Like me now, I can't leave right now. You know, I wake up every day at 5, 6 a.m. I take my coffee, and then I just keep on going. I see today I can film, today I can take pictures, today I can help clean, today I can talk to someone, today I can help someone out, today I can feed someone, today I can help some, uh, someone find shelter, today I can spend time with my family and show them that I'm okay and they're okay. You know, there's always something to do here. There's always going to be something to do here. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez, with Dina Kespe, Abigail Oni Wohacha, Alexandra Locke, Priyanka Tilve, Amy Walters, and me, Mohamed Jamjoum. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is our engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. And Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Kamal Muzawwa, Rana Salam, and Emily Maldi for taking the time to share their stories during such a difficult period. If you're interested in helping out the people in Beirut, check out this episode's description for links. And if you haven't subscribed to the show yet, there's some links there too, but also our social media handles. And furthermore, just go to podcast.aljazeera.com slash the take. We'll be back.